heaven, we just again want to settle our minds and come before you, and I pray that you would help us to get to know you better through this study this morning and get to know your infinite care and love and concern for our every need and how you prepared such a special place for Adam and Eve to live in, that beautiful paradise home that you would have had for each and every one of us had they not fallen into sin. And we do thank you and praise you for this home that we have today on earth that is, even though it's sin-cursed, it is still so beautiful. We thank you for the spring that's right around the corner, the beauty of this earth. We thank you for the many, many wonderful provisions that have come forth from this earth. And uh, you have just provided for us so abundantly. And I pray that we don't take any of this for granted, that we remember each and every day to thank you for all you have given to us, our bodies in particular, and our minds and our souls, and, and most of all, of course, for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us so that we might spend all of eternity worshiping and praising you and being with you and getting to know you more and more deeply each and every day. Of course, there are no days in eternity, but forever, just to get to know you better and to have fellowship one with another. Father, now go before us. Help us to concentrate on that which you would have for us. Hide me behind the creative and redemptive works of the Lord Jesus Christ, for we pray in his wonderful name. Amen. I was thinking about that this uh, weekend when I went down to see my girls down at their school, their college. and I took them to the mall. Of course, that's what you have to do, you know, when you go visit your college kids. They always need more deodorant, hairspray, and all that kind of thing. We were in the, they have a big mall down in Greenville, South Carolina, and I was walking around, and it just kind of hit me all of a sudden that uh, everything in that mall, think about this sometime. I mean, you know how much there is in a mall to look at. There's just so much clothes and, and perfumes, and they've got these body and bath shops and, and dishes and silverware and china and just everything you could ever want and more. All of that came from the earth. You know, today, this morning as I was driving in and past some big buildings, well, think about a city, a, the skyscrapers and everything within those cities and the windows and the bricks and everything, our clothes, our glasses. I mean, everything you can think of came from just the earth, men digging into the earth and coming out with the, the minerals and all the, the wood and everything that, that we have used to build what we have. I mean, we just started with a with a ball of, of the dirt, you know, the ground. Isn't that incredible? And I shared that with Connie. I said, you know, there isn't anything here. It's almost like sometimes we don't remember that. We get to, to worshiping the stuff and forget where it came from, that God provided all of this for us. There's just, it's just so magnificent to think about. And we came from the dirt ourselves. It's phenomenal how anyone can think that there wasn't a great designer you know, and an intelligence behind all this, that this, all of this stuff <laughs> could just come by chance. I mean, as I've said, that takes so much faith to believe that instead of that God created it all. Anyway, I just thought I would throw that in because it just made me marvel again about it this weekend. Well, after telling of God's seventh and final day of the creation week, the day in which he rested from all his work which he had created and made, as it told us in verse 3 of chapter 2, now chapter 2 of Genesis proceeds to present not only a quick review of God's creation of the earth, but some additional information on how the plant life, remember we learned this last week, a quick review of how the plant life of the earth, the vegetation, was watered by a mist rather than rain. We saw that in verses 5 and 6. 
and how man was then directly made or formed from, as we just said, the dust of the ground and given the breath of life by God himself. Verse 7. Well, continuing to give us additional information, which was not included in the more general account of chapter 1, we are now told in Genesis 2, verses 8 to 17, about the very lovely home which God directly prepared for Adam. And we learn about the task which God had for Adam, the job, the particular job regarding that home, and also the test he had for Adam very critical test that he put before him regarding two trees in the garden. So as we consider this 14th lesson in our Genesis study, which is entitled The Garden of Eden, I wasn't very original there, so if somebody comes up with a better title, maybe I'll grab that one too, but The Garden of Eden, we're going to cover three main sections. We're going to look at a special paradise, then a special project, or a specific project, excuse me, and then a single prohibition. So let's begin by looking at a special paradise, and for this I'm going to read verses 8 to 14, chapter 2, 8 to 14, where the scripture says, And the Lord God, remember that's the name Jehovah, Jehovah Elohim, planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, which is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedillium and onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, The same is that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hiddekel, that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The entire creation of heaven and earth and all the host of them was yet still at this point in time, what? Very good. Very good. Genesis 1.31. The entire world was full of perfection and beauty and harmony. God had the universe, which he had planned and purposed in eternity past. He also had the earth, which he had planned and purposed. And he had the man, whom he had planned and purposed. However, in his divine wisdom, God knew that man would need a very special place to live, a home. Although the entire world The whole globe had been placed under Adam's dominion, yet God, who knows man because he created man in his own image and likeness, he knew that man has this innate need, because he put it there, this inner need for a very specific place to live. Man needs a place he can call what? Home. We all have that need. We need a special residence, a place where we can experience the closest, and the most intimate love, where we can feel secure and settled, a place where we can relax after working, or where we can rest at night and revive our strength, and a place, of course, where we can raise a family. So knowing this, God met man's need by preparing for him an exceedingly beautiful 
garden paradise, which the Bible refers to as a garden eastward in Eden. You know, we were made in the image and likeness of God himself. Does God need a very special place called home? Yes, he does too. I mean, he has the whole universe in which he could dwell, but he has chosen to live in a specific place, which we call heaven. The throne room of God is in a specific place. As a matter of fact, his son called it his father's house in John 14, verse 2. In my father's house are many dwelling places or mansions. So even God has a specific dwelling place. He needs a home also, and we are created in his image, so we likewise need a special place called home. Now, there are some specific features given to us about the Garden of Eden in verses 8 to 14 that we just read. First of all, we are told about the garden itself, which is what we're going to consider in verse 8 as we look at one special garden. And then we're told about two special trees. And then what are we told about? Four special rivers. So one special garden is in verse 8. In verse 8, we are told that it was the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, who personally and directly planted, notice that word, planted a garden in Eden. He did it. Just as Jehovah Elohim had personally and directly formed man's body himself, you know, and then breathed his own life into that body, So did he personally and directly prepare a special dwelling place for man, a place which was to be his earthly home. You know, God easily could have given an impersonal command to the earth. He could have just said to the earth, you know, bring forth a beautiful garden, as he had said uh, with regard to the creation of all the vegetation on earth back on day three. Look at verse 11 of chapter one. He could have just done that and made an impersonal and said, you know, let the earth bring forth this beautiful garden. But God's relationship with man was to be very special, wasn't it? And so God wanted to be involved personally with all of the very special provisions for man. Now, this may remind us, probably should remind us, of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is even now, right now, personally and directly involved in doing what? Same kind of thing. He's personally involved in preparing a special dwelling place for us. Let's look. I've already talked about John chapter 14. Go there if you would a minute. John in the New Testament, the Gospel of John chapter 14. The most comforting words in all of the scripture. We did a, when we did our Life of Christ study, we even have a mini album on this, which is called uh, True Comfort for Troubled Hearts. The Lord Jesus here is speaking in John chapter 14. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. You know what that is? That is a claim to deity, if ever there was one. You believe in God, believe also in me in the same manner and way you believe in God, believe in me. Now he says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. There are definitely many places in my father's house, and I go to do what? To prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. So what is the Lord Jesus You can go back to Genesis 2. What's he doing right now? 
While he's absent from us, he is preparing for each one of us an addition unto his father's house, a specific dwelling place, a eternal home for every single one of us who belong to him. Of course, you have to belong to him. You have to believe in him and be one of his children. And then you will have your own special place to live, your home for all of eternity. We will live on the new earth, just as Adam lived on this earth. But we will each have our own personally God-built dwelling place, our own special Eden to call home throughout all of eternity. Now, the name Eden in the Hebrew is the word Eden, E-D-H-E-N, Eden. It's kind of like I thought, well, we'll each have a den to live in, <laughs> our own den, you know, a den, if you got that. But... Eden in Hebrew literally means delight. We will own, you know, all have our own special delightful place, our home. Isn't your home your delight here? I mean, yeah, it is. Our homes are our delight. Now, the Hebrew word for garden is gan, G-A-N, and it refers to a place that is enclosed or protected and sheltered. Some have even suggested that we might picture a park surrounded by a hedge. Did you ever picture the Garden of Eden that way, sort of protected maybe by a hedge? But the word gone includes this idea of being uh, protected. It, e it might even carry the idea of being covered. And I thought, well, that isn't that strange, really, because the new Jerusalem on the new earth is going to also have a wall around it, you know, a protection, isn't it? Not so much that it's a protection, but it's sort of like a boundary. And so very well, you know, the Garden of Eden could have had the, a specific type of boundary or even a covering. So the Gan in Eden um, was different from the rest of the world because it was home for men. And notice, this is the only time in the Bible where it says the Garden in Eden, in verse 8, a garden eastward in Eden. What that tells us is that Eden is the name of the land area in which the garden was placed. So picture a bigger place, a bigger land mass called Eden, and in that land mass was this garden, the garden in Eden. And it was, you know, it was a special delight for man and for woman who was placed there also. And this is not because it was any more perfect than the rest of the earth, because God specifically um, had said that everything was very good, so the whole earth was very good and everything was perfect. But it was special, and it had a special delight for man, because God specifically made it for man's delight and for his shelter. It probably was more exceedingly beautiful and bountiful with fruit than the rest of the world, because this is what the scripture implies just by the use of the word garden, it does imply that it was more, more beautiful and more bountiful with fruit. It was a place that provided the delightful covering, you know, the perfect home and provision, which man needs. It was a God-designed, God-made paradise, specifically for man. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, wrote this. He said, quote, God did not put man in a place made of silver and gold nor in a house made of ivory, but in the most beautiful and artful place of all, nature, a garden furnished and adorned by God himself, end of quote. Well, since we are also told in verse 8 that God is the one who put 
the man whom he had formed into this garden, which was where? Eastward, right, eastward in Eden. We'll talk about the fact that God put man there, but let's look at eastward for a minute. We can assume, now think about this, that the man, Adam, had either been created somewhere west of this garden, because God took him and moved him eastward in Eden. So what does that imply? It means that Adam had to have been created out of the dust of the ground that was west of Eden, or it it could mean that the land of Eden had been located somewhere east of Israel because directions in the scripture are always given in relation to Israel. So it could mean that also. Now, Adam, whose name in Hebrew means man, right? We've talked about that before. His name means man, was already in existence when God began to make his special home. And when this home was ready, when the garden in Eden was ready, God himself came and got Adam. And he personally put him in his new home, didn't he? That's what it says. Look at verse 8. And the Lord got... um, and the Lord God planted a garden east where he needed, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now look down at verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden. So God himself personally came and got Adam and placed him in this special home, this new home for, that he had specifically prepared for him. And what again does this remind us of? This is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ will do when he comes to receive us at the time of the rapture, which, you know, the seed for the rapture was laid in John 14, verses 1 to 3. He was really talking about the rapture in those verses we just read. You can also read about it in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 17. When Christ has completed his preparation of all the dwelling places for the church age people, all the people who will be part of the church age, then he is going to come to get us himself. He's not going to send Michael or Gabriel. He is personally going to come to get us and personally escort us to our individual paradises, our places of eternal delight in our Father's house. So you see the correlation here again between the Creator and the Redeemer, one and the same person. So man's first knowledge of his creator was of one who loved him so much that he not only gave him life and did so personally, God formed his body and breathed life into him, but one who carefully and directly provided abundantly above all that he could have ever asked or thought. And this is... This was not only true in God's preparation of this garden in Eden, but it's likewise true with the new home that we will have in heaven. Because the scripture says that I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of men the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. So you can just bank on the fact that our eternal dwelling place is going to be really spectacular and beautiful and gorgeous beyond what we can even think right now. And perfectly suited to each one one of us, I believe, perfectly suited to us. Well, as you are probably well aware, not everyone takes the biblical account of the Garden of Eden literally. Is there anybody who didn't know that? (laughs) Not everybody says, well, there was really, really an historical place called the Garden of Eden, a real place planted by God himself. The unsaved secular individual scoffs 
ridicules the idea of this garden being real, being literal. To him, it's something which is on the same level as a fairy tale. And then even many religious individuals, even many people in the church, in Christendom, will generally speak of the Garden of Eden as being nothing but a symbol or a type of an ideal environment or a perfect earth, a utopia. They look at Eden as a dream for an ideal earth, uh, something toward which men should corporately work or toward which the church should work, you know, to eventually bring paradise to earth. A religious man very often concludes that the goal of mankind together, and this is the whole purpose behind the ecumenical movement, you know, that all men, regardless of doctrine, should get together to strive to make this earth a garden of Eden, so to speak, a utopian paradise. However, if the garden of Eden was, as the secular individuals say, if it was merely a fable, a fairy tale, this must mean, think about it, that Adam was also part of the fairy tale, right? As well as Eve. And the serpent, Satan, was part of this fairy tale because they were all in the garden, which is part of the fairy tale. Also, then, man's fall into sin and his separation of God must likewise be part of this fable. And if the Garden of Eden never existed, then man, man's fall into sin never took place, right? I mean, that's only logical. Because if the garden where he sinned never existed, then nothing ever occurred there. Also, if the Garden of Eden is merely a symbol of a type of paradise, a utopian earth toward which men should corporately strive, then man doesn't need Christ, does he, to come and give us this perfect earth. For one thing, without a literal Eden, as I just stated, we have no grounds for assuming a literal Adam or a literal Eve and a literal Satan and a literal fall into sin. And if we have not inherited the sin nature from Adam, then we have no need for the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem us from sin. I mean, if we never fell into sin through Adam, then we don't need a redeemer to redeem us from sin. Also, if man is perfectly capable himself of creating his own ideal utopian environment, then all he needs to do is just work a little harder, right? and uh, bring paradise to earth by his own energy and efforts and works and goodness. But as we studied, when we studied the book of Revelation, is this ever going to be possible? Is man getting there? Is the church getting there? No. Man on his own, apart from the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ at the time of his second coming, man would never, ever turn this globe into an, a utopian paradise. He would only succeed in blowing it to bits. And that's where he's headed right now. And without the Lord coming back, we would have absolutely no hope at all. Well, if we read the scripture in its natural way, which is what we should always do, we find that the passage of this lesson in Genesis chapter 2 clearly teaches that the Garden of Eden was a literal historical place. Not only are we given a specific direction for the garden, where was it? Eastward. But we are told that it was in a particular land. What was the name of that land? Eden. Eden. And there are other real lands mentioned in regard or with regard to a river that flowed 
through the land of Eden. We have, for example, the land of Havilah is mentioned. We'll talk about that in a minute. And Ethiopia and Assyria. And real rivers are mentioned. We've got the Pison and the Gihon and the Hittichel and the Euphrates. So the natural reading and understanding of this passage is that Eden was just as historically real as the rest of the geographical locations which are mentioned. Also, the very context of the passage regarding the garden points toward it being historical. What is being discussed here in, in, our, in the context of the Garden of Eden? What is it? It's creation. Uh, the, the origin of the universe, the origin of the earth, the plants, all the animal life, and man himself. Now, if the earth and the universe and the plants and the animals and man are real, are they? Look around you. Are they real? Yes, they're real. Then the Garden of Eden must also be a real historical place. So it's very natural, it's quite natural to expect that in an account of the creation of the earth and the creation of man, that we would also find a discussion of man's first home. That's just kind of natural. Well, you would ask, where did Adam live? He had the whole world, but you know he wasn't going to live all over the world. He couldn't. He's not omnipresent. He had to live in a specific place where he would you know, live with Eve and raise their family. So this is just natural that God would now talk about man's first home. Verse 8 is essentially a summary of the completed action of the Lord's preparation of man's special paradise home. Look at it. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. All right, that's a summary of God's creation of the garden and coming to get Adam and putting him there. Now what we have in verses 9 to 14 is uh, we are taken back, you know, and we're given some additional details about that garden. Okay, so that eight is a summary, and now we're going to go back and get some more details. And in these details, we read about two special trees and four special rivers. So let's first of all talk about the two special trees. The Garden of Eden met man's need for a special home, but it also met his need for beauty and food. In verse 9, we are told that the Lord God caused every tree, notice that every tree in Hebrew, that's kol etz, which means all kinds of trees, to grow out of the ground in the garden. The implication is here that there, were a very, there was a very great number of, of trees of all different kinds, and they were both pleasant to the sight and good for food. They were not only beautiful to look at, but they provided, you know, beautiful, wonderful, delicious fruit. So the first home of man was apparently rather large, you know, to house all this wide variety of, of different trees. It, it would have to be rather big. And we can be sure, since it was referred to, is referred to as a garden, that it contained all kinds of lovely, lush shrubs and herbs and flowers and orchards and that sort of thing as well. Beautiful butterflies and birds, you know, and all kinds of things that you picture in a, gorge, a gorgeous garden setting. So Adam's home was furnished with the beauty of sinless nature. Now that's something we can't really think about, but sinless nature. No weeds. What did you call your thing this morning? Catherine says she's, she has a garden of Whedon. I thought that was cute, garden of Whedon. I've got that too. 
there were no weeds, there were no thorns, there were, you know, nothing that has come since the curse on this earth. And God also provided man with an abundance of food in this garden and beauty, both of which, what would you think if you were put in a home that was just loaded with wonderful food in the refrigerator and in the cupboards and just everywhere you went in your home, you saw nothing but beauty. Everything was just absolutely gorgeous, suited perfectly to your taste. What would this cause you to do toward the one who had prepared this place for you? Love him and honor him and worship him and praise him and thank him. So all of this, this special home, should have stirred, and I'm sure it did, stirred Adam to praise and thank his creator. So the garden was a special place which was conducive to the worship of God himself. It was also a place where Adam had personal fellowship with God. So in a sense, we could say that the garden home of Adam in the land of Eden prefigured the later tabernacle and also the temples where God could meet with man. And as I thought about that, I thought, too, you know, the, the uh, tabernacle was also protected. It had, like, a boundary around it, didn't it, with that, um, the drapes there? I forget what they call them. But. Well, verse 9 tells us that there were two very special, important trees that were located where? In the midst of the garden, right there in the center of the garden. One was the tree of life and the other was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we know that they were both, if you read verse 9, you could get a little confused because it kind of sounds like, well, maybe just the, um, the tree of life was in the midst because it says the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. And then it says, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So you think, well, maybe just the tree of life was in the middle. But look over at Genesis 3.3. It says, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's speaking of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So where was it? It was also in the midst. So the two trees were apparently rather close to one another in the garden. They were both in the center of the garden. And they, of course, provide the basis for the testing which is to come. The tree of life, let's talk about it for a minute. We discover from this passage here and from other passages in the scripture where the tree of life is mentioned that it is an essential mark of a perfect place where God can dwell with man. God can dwell with man because man is sinless. Here he's sinless, so the tree of life is there. The tree of life will again appear where? In the New Jerusalem. And uh, so God can dwell with man because man is then sinless. In the New Jerusalem, redeemed man will be sinless because he will be covered with the righteousness of Christ. Now, trees throughout the scripture are symbols of life. Genesis 3.22 tells us that this tree of life in the garden would uh, confer life on those who ate its fruit. So we learn that somehow or another it would give life to those who ate of it. Now, what kind of life it's speaking about? Well, we keep looking at the scripture. Proverbs 3.18 tells us that uh, wisdom is as a tree of life. So the tree of life provides wisdom. Proverbs 11.30 says that the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. 
Proverbs 13, 12 tells us that a desire fulfilled is a tree of life, and also a gentle tongue is referred to as a tree of life. In other words, these are all things which give fullness of life to their owners. You know, it's not like Adam and Eve didn't already have life, but eating of that would give them just fullness of life. We even find that trees in the Bible are seen as a symbol of the life of God himself when, because they remain green throughout the summer drought. And you can read about that in Psalm 1-3, Jeremiah 17-8. Also, the golden candlestick in the tabernacle, I tried to circle it right here, it was a stylized type of a tree of life because its light fell over here on the 12 loaves of the showbread and this symbolized God's life sustaining the 12 tribes of Israel. So there is a lot which can be learned about the tree of life from other scriptures, other passages of the scripture. Now we don't know exactly what the fruit, well we don't know at all <laughs> what the fruit of this tree was. You know, a lot of people picture it as an apple, but we have no idea what it was. Nor do we know by what means it may have been able to inhibit cellular, cellular decay, you know, so as to enable the one who ate of it to live indefinitely, just to continue indefinitely in perfect health and never die. But we do know that God had to expel Adam and Eve from the garden after they sinned so that they would not then eat of the tree of life and live forever in their sinful fallen flesh. So he had to remove them for their own good. We also know that when Christ returns to establish his earthly kingdom, there will be trees growing in the millennial kingdom which will continually provide food and medicine for the citizens of his kingdom. You know, those who are the overcomers during the tribulation period. And you can read about that in Revelation 2.7 to the overcomers in one of the church letters. He promised that they would be able to eat of the tree of life in his kingdom. Furthermore, the tree of life will be present in the new Jerusalem. Oops, that way. And it will provide not only 12 manners of fruits, but its leaves even will provide perpetual healing for all of the nations. Now, the tree of life, we, we note again then, exists only in a perfect world where God himself is dwelling with man, with sinless man, redeem, either sinless man or redeemed man. And those who live there with him have eternal life. Now, the primary thing to realize is that God placed both the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden in order to set before Adam and, of course, Eve, who's not yet on the scene, but she will be next week. <laughs> She'll be on the scene. To set before them a choice. He gave man, God gave man absolutely every opportunity to choose life over death. And death, as we will see, would be the result of eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. So God gave Adam every opportunity to choose his own personal presence, God's personal presence, over being separated from him. He gave Adam every opportunity to choose to eternally live with him, you know, just to continue on living with him rather than to live eternity without God. 
He gave him every opportunity to choose peace over division, to choose obedience over disobedience, to choose freedom over bondage, righteousness over unrighteousness, good over evil, perfection over corruption, to choose himself, God, over self and Satan. God does exactly the same with you and I. He loves all of us just as he did Adam. And he showed Adam his love by providing him with the fruit of the tree of life. Adam could have avoided experiencing physical death. And he, um, perhaps, I don't know how this would have worked, but perhaps Adam, after he lived, I don't know how many years on earth, would have just been translated to heaven like Enoch was. Maybe that's how it was going to work. Because we know if they hadn't sinned, the world would pretty soon have gotten so populated that maybe after so many years, when someone just got so intimate with God, they would just suddenly be translated into eternity with God. So maybe, you know, without dying. So Adam had that choice. He could have lived eternally without ever dying. And he could also have never experienced spiritual death. Not only physical death could have been avoided, but spiritual death. He never had to be, you know, separated from God. He never had to have any kind of broken fellowship with God. Similarly, God now demonstrates his love to you and I by providing us with the opportunity to have eternal life by way of the fruit of another tree, a tree which appeared to man's vision as a tree of death, but really it was what? A tree of life, which brought forth the fruit of life when the Lord Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross, making eternal life with God possible for those who partake of him. And like Adam, we also have the hope of never having to die physically, because we have the blessed hope of the rapture, and we also have the, the sure hope of living eternally and of never having to be spiritually separated from God. By partaking of the fruit of the tree of life, the cross. It says in John, 1 John 5, 11, 12, And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son hath not life. Well, there's a lot of questions about the tree of life, and I asked some pastors and other people, so if you're a little bit confused about it, guess what? So are a lot of other people. But... Um, Think about it and maybe um, come up with some things this week as you study your homework. And I have a lot of questions about the tree of life myself. I just know that it's always present where God is dwelling with man. And man is sinless and he's going to live eternally with God. Well, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was also in the midst of the garden. And it also was good for food and pleasant to the eyes. We don't read about that here in our passage, but if you look at Genesis 3, 6, you'll see it also was very pleasant to the eyes. And that's what attracted Eve, remember? And it was good for food. So I'm sure it tasted delicious. Yet, as we shall see in Genesis 2, 17, it was the only tree from which Adam was instructed, what? Not to eat. The only one. Now, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil only appears in chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis. We never read about it again in the Bible. It's only here. 
Yet it is very important to understand its significance. Now think about this, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Did man already know good? Did he know, did he, yeah, well he did because everything around him was already good. I mean, it was very good. God had placed him into a perfect sinless environment where everything, including himself, was very good. There was no sin, there was no evil. However, if man disobeyed God's command and went ahead and ate of the tree's fruit, then what would he know? He would know evil because he would know what it was like to be disobedient, and he would know, therefore, sin, and he would know evil because he would experience them personally. So his own willful disobedience in eating the fruit of the tree would cause him to have separation from God. It would break his communion, his fellowship, his relationship with God, and it would cut him off from the life that has its source only in God. So then, think about it, Adam would truly know good, right? Because, like, when you're, if you have never had anything but good health, can you really know good health? You have to almost have a contrast. I know after you've been sick, then you really appreciate your health. And it's the same way with, um, I guess, with Adam and Eve. When they knew nothing but good, they didn't have a contrast. But when they finally partook, they shouldn't have, but when they did partake of that fruit, then they knew evil because they disobeyed, and then they really realized the goodness that they had just lost. So it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they really had a much better understanding of goodness once they contrasted it with the darkness of evil. Now, whether there was anything harmful in the fruit of this tree itself, you know, like some kind of toxic substance which might affect their bloodstream or the genetic system in order to eventually bring about death, physical death, just as whether the fruit of the tree of life actually had some special juices or some medicinal value which promoted life, we cannot say dogmatically. You know, we don't know if this um, death thing was in the fruit of the tree of knowledge and of life was in the tree, the fruit of the tree of life. We don't know that if it was in the fruit. It is possible, however, that the trees themselves and their fruit possessed no qualities in particular, you know, no chemicals, no juices to give either life or death, but that they were simply the objects which were used for man to exercise his freedom of choice regarding his obedience to God. That's the way I would tend to go with it. It was God's word which decreed that to eat of the tree of life would bring life, and to eat of the tr other tree would bring death. The trees and their fruit may simply just have been the objects which were used to bring about what God's word had already said. The power of life and death rested in what therefore had been decreed by God's word and by what man chose to do with God's word rather than in the trees themselves. Now, I can't be dogmatic about that, but that's what my view would be on it, my opinion. All right, and we're going to talk more about these two trees um, when we get to the third part of our outline for this lesson. So I better move on quickly. Let's look at the four special rivers. In, well, I've already read it, uh, so I won't reread re it, but in verses 10 to 14, um, we find that God also met man's need not only for a home and for beauty and for food, but for water. 
And this supply of water came from a river. Apparently it was a great river which God caused to flow through Eden, you know, through the land of Eden. Actually, the phraseology suggests that the river rose in Eden and then it flowed right through the garden in order to help water it. Since there was no rainfall in the pre-flood earth, this river must have been fed by an underground you know, reservoir, some kind of subterranean channel. And there were these kind of, uh, you know, similar subterranean channels all over the face of the globe back in that pre-flood earth. Well, the flow of water in the Edenic River must have been, as I said, abundant because after it's made, it made its way through the garden, we are told that it broke into four major rivers, four heads, each of which must have been long enough to reach one or more of the seas thereby completing the whole water cycle. Now, the names of the four rivers are, are given to us, a fact, again, which stresses the historicity, you know, the fact that this all was real, a, a real historical event that took place in, a, in real geographical places because we're given the names. Now, in verse 11, we read of Pisan, which can also be spelled Pishon, and it literally means the leaper. I wasn't able to find out the name, the meaning of the names of the other rivers, but this one means the leaper, so I imagine it was a, a bouncing kind of a, of a river. And it's mentioned only this one time here in the Old Testament. This is the only time we read about this river. However, it says that it compassed the land of Havilah, and we do read about the land of Havilah elsewhere in the Scripture. Here we are told that it was a land of gold and bedelium, and onyx. And it is often suggested by commentators that Havilah was the land of Arabia because Arabia was a source of gold in ancient times. And bedelium, by the way, if you want to know, was a translucent aromatic kind of substance, which in the scripture is compared to manna. That's what bedelium is. And you can read that in Numbers 11.7. Well, it's interesting to discover that Havilah that's the, um, the land of gold that the Pisan encompassed. Imagine it, the, this river went all around this particular land. The, the name Havilah was a name that was also given to a son of Cush in Genesis 10.7 and a son of Joktan in Genesis 10.29. Now, Cush was a descendant of Ham. Ham was one of the three sons of who? Noah. So, uh, also, Joktan was a descendant of Shem, and Shem was another one of the sons of Noah. So, apparently, Ham and Shem, two of Noah's sons, who lived on both the pre-flood earth and the post-flood earth, you know, they lived before the flood and after the flood, apparently these two sons remembered this land of Havilah with all of its riches. And that pre-flood land must have really made quite an impression on these two sons because they talked about it to their descendants. And therefore, two of their descendants were named for this land of Havilah. Well, the second river mentioned in verse um, 13 is Gihon. And of course, you've heard of the Gihon Springs in J Jerusalem were named, probably named from this original river in Eden. And it was said to, well, not in Eden, it was said to encircle the land of Ethiopia. 
It came, you know, came out of that original river and then broke off and encircled the whole land of Ethiopia, which is called Cush, C-U-H-S, C-U-S-H, excuse me, in Hebrew. Ethiopia is called Cush in Hebrew. Now, it is the mention of the name Cush which has caused many other commentators to identify this Gihon River with the Nile River. They say, well, this is the Nile because it was over there near Ethiopia. However, Cush is also associated in the scripture with the land of the Kassites, which were the successors to the old Babylonian empire, and therefore some others have speculated that the Gihon was one of the rivers or the canals of Mesopotamia. Now, the third river is called the Hittikel, and the same name is given in the Assyrian monuments to the Tigris River. So the Hittikel, if you want to make a note, is, was also called the Tigris. And the Tigris, along with the Euphrates, which is the fourth river mentioned here, um, are still in existence today, aren't they? The Tigris and Euphrates rivers. But there is a slight problem in that the Genesis account tells us that this Tigris River or this Hittikal River went toward the east of Assyria, whereas we know that the Tigris River of known history goes on the west side of Assyria. So there's a little problem there. Now, a big, big question for many people down through the centuries has been where was the Garden of Eden located? Where was it located? You see on this map, which I got out of um, Harold Wilmington's book, they have it over here with a question mark, and I put another bigger question mark there. Many, many speculations based upon the names that we have just been discussing, the names of the different rivers and the names of the different lands, many speculations have been offered, and most of them push put the Garden of Eden somewhere in here near the Tigris and Euphrates River. However, now make sure you hear me now, if you haven't been listening, hear me right now. What most people do not consider or acknowledge is that the catastrophic flood of Noah's day, the global flood, totally rearranged the geography of the earth. The rivers and the countries described here in Genesis 2 were pre-flood, before the flood, geographical features which were familiar to Adam, who was probably the original author of this particular portion of Genesis. But the geography described in these verses does not exist in our present earth. It tells us in 2 Peter 3, 6, the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. The names which seem to belong to our world, such as Ethiopia and the Tigris and Assyria and Euphrates, were actually originally pre-flood names. Names which were remembered, as we just saw with the name Havilah, these were names that were remembered by Noah and his family. And then they were given to people and to places in memory of that pre-flood earth. So those people who have attempted to place the location of the Garden of Eden in, for example, let's say the Tigris and Euphrates River region of our present world have neglected to realize how much devastation 
took place at the time of the global flood and how our current geography is just, you know, it has no physical connection at all with the original world. I mean, it could just totally be different. And so uh, we have really no idea where the Garden of Eden may have been located. I speculate it was somewhere in the Middle East, but you know, we can't, we can't say dogmatically at all where it was, and we can't base where it was based, you know, as I said, upon the names that are given to us here. And of course, to the Garden of Eden, if not removed earlier by God himself, um, what it was removed, we know, by, at the time of the flood. So there's no way to locate it in terms of our modern geography. And it may have been removed during Adam's lifetime there is reason to think that it could have been removed even while Adam was still alive. Now, remember, Adam lived for 960 years. But in this account, we find that verse 10 is given in the past tense. You don't, I don't know that we see that in our English, but it was given in the original language in the past tense, whereas um, verses 11 to 14 were given in the present tense. And this suggests that Eden was removed even during Adam's lifetime. Now, what you and I need to realize and to appreciate um, is that as God so graciously provided Adam with a bountiful river, which flowed right through his home, you know, through in this subterranean spring, which sprung up and then broke into four different rivers, he also meets our physical need for water. He provided Adam with food. He provides us with food. Um, provided Adam with beauty, provides us with beauty, provided Adam with water, and he provides us with water. We not only have the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also have the living water, which again comes from Jesus Christ. That living water is found in his Son. Christ himself said, remember to the Samaritan woman at the well, whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So this this uh, river in Eden was actually sort of a picture type of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as the fruit on the tree of life is a picture of him and his work on the cross. And it says in Isaiah 58, 11, And the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. Okay, now let's look at a specific project which is given to Adam in verse 15. Verse 15, I haven't read that, so look with me at verse 15. It says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. We are told here, again, as we were back in verse 8, that it was the Lord God who himself personally put Adam into the Garden of Eden. So Adam had been outside the garden, but God, God wanted him within its boundaries because he wanted Adam to know and to experience paradise. Man already, of course, we know, had a perfect world in which he could live, but within that perfect world, God prepared a special place for man to call home, a special place where God himself could meet with man and fellowship with him a place where man could behold all the splendor and all the beauty and all the provision and perfection of God's goodness and his love and his grace. So God took Adam and he placed him in the best place, didn't he? The best place. It was the best place because God had prepared it for Adam. So do you know 
where the best place, the greatest place for you to be is? Think about it in relation to Adam. The best place for you to be is the place in which God has put you. And for a lot of us, that's right here, you know, in Sanford. If God has put you here and you know that it's God who put you here, then it is the best place to be. And you, as you've heard the expression, you bloom where you're planted. Well, even in the absolutely perfect paradise that God had made for Adam, yet man was given work to do. And we talked about this before. God, you see, knows that work is necessary for man's own good. The perfect, ideal, utopian paradise world was not to be a world of fun and frolic and idleness and pleasure only because that would not have met man's need, and God knew that. It was to be a place of serious work and service, and we find that even in the new earth, in, our, you know, in the eternal state, we as God's servants will have work to do. I'm glad of that. I don't know about you, but I, you know, playing a harp on a fluffy cloud forever would not be my idea of, of having a good time throughout all of eternity. It wouldn't take me long to get bored. We need work. And we will have work all throughout eternity. So God expected Adam to work and to keep up the garden. He was told to dress it, and he was told to keep it. The word dress means to work, till, cultivate. He was to cultivate the garden to uh, dress its shrubs. You know, if he, if he never maintained it, and it was in this perfect tropical um, greenhouse-type environment, what would happen? I mean, everything would just grow and grow and grow and grow. So he had to prune and prune and prune, and um, he had to take care of it, to maintain it. He had to look after it and care for the garden. Adam was personally responsible for the garden. He was God's steward of that garden. And he had to um, perhaps go over to the, to the river and get extra water for some of the things that might not have thrived sufficiently on just some mist. Some things might have needed more water. He was also to look after and care for the animals which were in that garden, you know, birds and fish and things like that. Now, we don't know when Satan and one-third of the angelic host fell with him. We don't know um, when that was, but we do know that it was sometime in chapter 2 because at the end of Genesis 1, everything was still very good, and then when we begin chapter 3, who do we see right away? Now, the serpent was more beautiful, so there is Satan on earth in chapter 3. So we don't know exactly when Satan fell, but it had to be somewhere in chapter 2. So part of Adam's job assignment in keeping the garden was to guard it from an external enemy. And somehow or another, we don't know how or when, but we do know that somehow Satan slipped into that garden because he's there at the opening of chapter 3. So perhaps Adam was not sufficiently doing his job in guarding the garden. But anyway, Adam, man was created to be a responsible being. He was meant by his creator to be an active working person. He was not made to be irresponsible or lazy or inactive or slothful. He was to have dominion over the whole earth and also over all the animals, but he was also to work a very special piece of real estate which had provided, been provided for him by God as his utopian home. However, as the Bible warns us, unto whom much is given, what? Much is required. Of him shall much be required. Adam had been given so much, 
think if you think about it he had probably been given more than any person has ever ever been given so of him was much required adam was expected to be an example of obedience for the entire human race which would come from him and so he was given a test which would gravely affect not only himself and his life but all of his offspring, all of the animals, and really the entire universe as well. So let's look at the test, a single prohibition, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. These two verses tell us now why God created man. God wanted to live with a being. Oops, that's the one I'm supposed to have. God wanted to live with a being who freely chooses to live with him and love him. He not only wants a being who has the ability to choose to love and to live with him, but who will willingly choose to do so. God did not want to coerce man. He didn't want to force man into loving and serving and worshiping and fellowshipping and living with him. He didn't want to create a robot type of being, an assembly line um, creature who was pre-programmed to serve and worship him. So freedom of choice was a very important aspect of God's creation of man in his own image and likeness. God wants to dwell and to fellowship with beings who freely choose to dwell and to fellowship with him. I mean, you wouldn't want to spend your life with a, with a man who you had to force to live with you, would you? You want him to freely choose to love and dwell with you. And so God, of course, wanted this. He wants to be glorified by those who freely choose to glorify him. He doesn't want to live with people who don't wish to live with him. And so he gave Adam a test a probation so that Adam could freely choose to love God. Now, what is the, mo- the best proof of genuine love for God? What is it? Obedience. I mean, you know, there are some days maybe you don't feel like you really, really love God. Uh, but we don't go by our feelings. How do we show our love for God? By being faithful, faithfully obedient. Obedient, obedient. And a life of obedience proves to him that you truly do love him. So why did God go to all the effort in the first place to create a universe and a very, very special planet for man to live in? You know, why didn't God just make man and immediately place him in heaven with himself? Well, it's because, as we said, God wants a creature made in his own image and his own likeness who freely will choose to live with him. I mean, he could have just made Adam and then taken him to heaven. But Adam wouldn't have had any choice about whether he was going to live eternity with God. Now, there was, of course, a great incentive for Adam, great incentive for Adam to choose to obey God. I mean, after all, God had provided him with absolutely everything. He not only had life itself, but he had God's presence. He had a perfect environment. He had wonderful animal companionship, a perfectly suited wife. We'll look at next week. He had work to keep him satisfied and fulfilled, and he had every type of delicious fruit and herb to eat. I mean, he had it all. 
didn't he? Had everything. He was sinless also. Everything was very good. There was only one restriction, one simple prohibition placed on Adam, and it was purposely placed there by God so as to present Adam with this great choice, which he had to make if he was going to be a free agent whose love and obedience were the results of his own will. So man had to be tested in order to demonstrate demonstrate that he loved God above all else and that he wanted to live with God and to express his love to God by his obedience. Now, if man was going to make a decision to be obedient to God, then the opportunity to be disobedient had to be presented. There had to be something for man to choose other than God. Now, because man was placed within nature, and because one of man's most basic needs and drives is to satisfy his hunger, what better way could there have been than for man to have been given the opportunity to choose obedience or disobedience to God via a commandment involving food, (laughs) delicious fruit. It was a test of the will via the way of the flesh. And yet God in his mercy, I had never really thought about this before, but in his great mercy, God saw to it that the choice for man was very, very heavily unbalanced because he was permitted to eat of every tree of the garden. Remember we said that it had every kind of tree and all kinds of, I'm sure there was many, every kind of flavor fruit you could imagine. There was probably even chocolate-flavored fruit (laughs) for man to eat. He He was permitted to eat of every single one of those trees except one. God only set one restriction on man. He could not eat of only one tree. I mean, that's heavily weighing the outcome, isn't it? I mean, you you have hundreds of trees over here, just don't eat of that one. So God was, in his mercy, giving him great benefit to choose to do the right thing. So the command of God, which is found in verse 17 is, you know, that he there was only one tree he couldn't eat of, and he says, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God told man, Adam, that he must not, in the Hebrew, we don't see this here in the English, but in the Hebrew, it is given in the very strongest language possible. God's, God was really, really warning Adam that he must not, absolutely not, under any condition, under any circumstance, he must not eat of that one tree. That's how strong he stated that. So God gave Adam the command of verse 17 because Adam needed God's word. Do we need God's word? Yes, we do. Adam needed God's word. Adam needed God to speak with him. Uh, I'm going to skip some things because I'm running out of time, time here. But by his simple words of instruction, and these were simple, this wasn't anything complicated, even a child could understand, you can eat all this, but you can't eat this. Well, what does a child always want to do? He wants to eat the one you don't. Same thing with Adam. But by his very simple words of commandment and instruction, God was actually setting the course for Adam's life. He was. All Adam had to do was merely obey what God told him. Obey God's word, and his life would have been happy ever after. Adam's choice was very clearly established by God's word. Obedience meant choosing life with God forever. 
while disobedience meant choosing death, physical death and spiritual death, separation from God forever. Obedience meant choosing fellowship with God, service to God, honor to God, while disobedience meant separation from God, a choice to serve self instead of God. You know, rebellion against God. It was a deliberate disobedience, a deliberate dishonoring of God. Now, it's exactly the same with you and I, exactly the same. We, too, are given a very simple choice, which even a child can understand. Adam was given only one restriction. You know what you and I are given? We are given only one way of redemption. Jesus said, I am the way. One way. It's very narrow, yes, but that's the way it is. Only one way of redemption. We have to make a very simple decision to accept the tree of life, the cross, Christ's death on the cross to cover our sins. Now, if we ignore or neglect or rebel against that one simple choice, then what do we do? We disobey God's word, and we willingly, of our own free will, we choose to live without God, both in this present life and throughout eternity. However, if we receive Christ and the fruit of his tree of life, and what's the fruit of his tree of life? It's salvation, redemption, and resurrection. If we receive his fruit, then we obey God and we choose to live with him forever. So there is a sense in which Adam's experience is very similar to our experience, to everybody's experience. Each of us, like Adam, share in God's commission to be his stewards over this creation. You know, he was given work and responsibility over the earth, so too are we. And each of us also, as Adam, prior to his fall, each of us live for a time without having any consciousness at all of sin or guilt. And of course, this isn't a very long time in our lives, but while we were our infants, or were infants, we had no consciousness of sin and guilt. And just like Adam had no consciousness of, you know, the knowledge of good and evil. Likewise, like Adam, each of us is on probation for a time. We're each given a test. And then also like Adam, each one of us, without failure, each and every single one of us becomes guilty as a willful sinner against God's word by way of our own freedom of choice. So we are not merely sinners because we have inherited the Adamic sin nature. You can't always just blame Adam, you know, for your sin because each and every one of us are also free moral agents and we have willingly also chosen to sin. If any one of us had been in Adam's place, we too would have chosen to sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So there's a sense in which we have the same experience as Adam. So there was only one prohibition, one restriction, one restraint placed upon man. Yet it would be this one prohibition which would test his love for his creator. This one prohibition which was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would give Adam the opportunity to disobey God's word if he chose. Now it would have been perfectly natural perfectly natural for Adam to have been so thankful to God 
for the life and the world and the mind and the body and the abundance of food and the beauty and all the rest that God had provided for him, that his love for God would have just, you know, caused him to gladly obey God's will in everything. You know, as Adam saw evidence of God's love in all that he had provided for him, Adam should therefore have realized that any kind of instruction or command which came from God would have been for his own good. It would have been further evidence of his love. So Adam should have willingly obeyed. There was every reason for Adam to obey, not based on fear, but based on love. And there was absolutely no reason for Adam to disobey. So this was absolutely about the simplest test of man's attitude toward his creator imaginable. So, would Adam trust and obey? Ah, that's the song <laughs> that I thought. <laughs> would he trust and obey God because he loved the one who demonstrated such magnificent love for him by creating him and providing so richly for his every need? Or would Adam doubt God's love and his goodness and possibly even resent his control and thereby disobey his word even on such a trivial little restriction as one type of fruit in a garden which was laden with fruit. Would he disobey even when God had told him that the result of his disobedience would be death? In the Hebrew, verse 17, where it says, Thou shalt surely die. In the Hebrew, that is literally, dying you shall die. You see, if man disobeyed God, death would be absolutely certain and sure. Man would begin the process of dying. Dying, ye shall die. And he would surely positively die. You know, death in the scripture always speaks of separation. If Adam chose to live without God's restriction and control on him, if Adam chose to deliberately disobey the one who had given him life and everything else, if Adam chose to distrust God's goodness and his love, then he would be cut off. He would be separated from God. And this, unfortunately, we know, is what Adam chose. He turned away from God and from obedience to God's word, and he, instead he turned to his own will and his own way. He did his own thing. And the consequence of this willful sin was not only instant spiritual death for he and Eve, as well, you know, as for all of their future offspring, but also eventual physical death as well. Yet God, here's the good news. That was the bad news. Here's the good news. Yet God already had a plan to redeem them from being eternally separated from him. He knew that this is what they would choose, and so... He already had a plan, which was through the shedding of the sinless blood of a sacrificial animal, which looked forward to, it foreshadowed, it typified the one-day sacrificial um, shedding of the sinless blood of his very own son, the Lord Jesus Christ.